Hey, it's Tony Messia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. We talk with Charlotte leaders about important and interesting issues, and our goal is to make you smarter, introduce you to people with insights about trends, and to help you understand the city you live in just a little bit better. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger and subscribe to one of our newsletters by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today, we're joined by David Raven, who's the CEO of Northwood Raven. Northwood Raven is based in Charlotte. It develops, builds, and manages housing communities in the Southeast. And it's one of the biggest developers in Charlotte. The Charlotte Business Journal ranked Northwood Raven number one in square footage developed in 2020. In 2021, Northwood Raven was ranked number eight. You know, those rankings are always a little volatile. I think it depends on what's in the pipeline, but certainly one of the biggest and best known developers in town. And complexes that Northwood Raven has developed include Uptown 550, Providence Row, 500 West Trade, Tower View Ballantyne, and it also manages The View, the 51-story residential tower in Uptown Charlotte. David is a 1994 graduate of UNC Charlotte, and he was in the news a little bit recently as the university's architecture school will now be named after him, following what has been described as a generous gift that will allow the school to expand its programs and its visibility. It will be called the David R. Raven School of Architecture. David, thanks for joining me. Happy to be talking to you. Well, I'm excited to talk with you because the topic of housing is always an important topic in Charlotte, and you have a front row seat on a particular part of that market. I'd like to understand that a little bit better. But first, I'm a little bit curious about how you got to where you are. And I read that you grew up in Durham in a family of medical professionals. Did your parents want you to be a doctor? I think they were most comfortable with a career in medicine, but they didn't really push any of I have two brothers, any of us, into a particular field. Okay. So how did you get interested in architecture? That's a great question. I just was always fascinated with the built environment. I remember seeing pictures and images in books as I was growing up and, and going to school of different towns and suburbs and cities. And it was just always a, a draw to understand more about that. I read that you went to an architecture camp at Cornell. Was that something that sparked your interest? That was a, it was something to introduce you to it as you're getting, applying to colleges. And it showed you the amount of dedication you had to have within that. So I did go up there to make sure this was a career I wanted to be in. And it confirmed that this was just going to be my passion. So was it interest in, in buildings and how they were designed and what they looked like? Was that really sort of what the draw was? That's how it started. I just was fascinated with the way that people lived and worked and shopped and, and what the built environment was doing to influence that. As I became older and took more and more classes and began to really study how the real world worked, I began to appreciate that I really was more passionate about development than I was just about architecture. So that, you know, became more of a draw for me as time went along. Okay. What are your memories of UNC Charlotte? I read something that the university put out a few years ago. I think it was profiling you and it, it said, and I quote, all nighters at UNC Charlotte with his fellow architecture students are among his most vivid memories. Quote, we would go and try to find something to eat or drink in the middle of the night, he says. We would wander around campus looking for a vending machine at 3 or 4 a.m. People would start to get a little chippy after not sleeping and things would be thrown across studio 
where deep conversations about nothing would start. It was a unique time. What are your memories of UNC Charlotte? Exactly that. It's a rite of passage, I believe, in any architecture school, truthfully, to really test the dedication that the student has to the field and the problem at hand. Almost immediately, you start to realize that the only way to really present your idea or solution to whatever problem was given to you in school was to stay up all night, work all day on trying to draw, sketch, make a model, do as much thinking on the issue as possible, and then to represent your solution in, in as many different ways as possible. So it became obvious very early that that was the expectation. And then as I went to different graduate schools, even after UNCC and met architecture students that had attended other undergrads, <laughs> we immediately knew in graduate school that you were going to be there all night working on whatever graduate school problem there was. It, it is universally understood that that is part of the education of architects. And so then you went on, you did some graduate work, real estate related, right? And then I, I read also, it said you spent a single day in law school. So yes, when I was coming up through architecture and began to realize that there was this field of developers, it was pretty undefined. When I was going through school, there wasn't as many tracks into real estate development as there are now. It's, it's very common today to, to see that within architecture schools or urban planning or business schools, there usually is a real estate focus. Well, there wasn't one when I was getting my education. So I finished architecture school undergrad. I went to Michigan, actually was getting a dual master's in architecture and urban planning and trying to figure out this, this field of development. And then I realized, well, it appears that developers have a business and sometimes a law background. So I need to go and begin to get that education to understand that. So I then enrolled in the MBA JD program at Wake Forest, uh, in particular to get back into the South, I believe, but came to that the year at the business school. And then you alternate into the law school. And I went there for the first day, heard the whole pitch on what it means to be a lawyer. And I said, you know, I actually don't think this is what I need to be a successful developer. So I was able to make that determination at orientation. It sounds like you might've been right in that joke, <laughs> in hindsight. It, it's a, it provides a lot of comic relief these days. It's, it's, people talk about my one day. Can you say to lawyers, say, listen, I know, I know what you're talking about. I was in law well, school. Okay. I've repeated that on countless occasions and said, you know, I learned this my first day. So it took you three years and I learned it in a day, something like that. <laughs> so you left graduate school and then you joined Crosland and for people who don't know, or maybe who weren't in Charlotte, you know, more than a decade ago, I think it's hard to overstate, you know, the influence that Crosland had as a major player in real estate in Charlotte over many decades. It's a company that dated back to the 1930s, you know, built shopping centers, office parks, subdivisions. It was one of the city's biggest home builders. You know, it's, it's, if you look around, there are few parts of town that Crosland has not had an impact on, you know, Blakeney, Sharon Corners, Stonecrest, Burkdale. So you, you started there, I think in the late nineties or so, is that right? I did. And what did you learn at Crosland? That was exciting because that was really a true development job. And I really lucked out in that when I joined that firm, it had some of the 
Charlotte Titans working there. Judd Little, Steve Vermillion, obviously John Croslin Jr., Merrifield, Jim Merrifield. So I joined this company. I was in the multifamily division with Judd, but there were all these other uh, developers focused on office, retail, land development, et cetera. And so I really got exactly what I was searching for, which was exposure and a career in real estate development and how everyone put all this schooling that I had done into practice. And it was, it was fantastic. What did you like about it? Well, it was really what I wanted to be doing. You started to realize that the developers were the ones coming up with the idea, determining the feasibility, economic feasibility of it, working with lenders and equity partners to convince them of the opportunity. And then sourcing the design professionals and working with them to create the vision that started the whole process. And then, you know, using these budgets to pull off what should be an economic success. There's, you know, you can't overbuild something or underbuild something. There's always changes. The market's changing. So it keeps you on your toes. But, you know, at the end of the day, the first project I worked on was actually Burkdale Village. And so seeing that come together from the Carlson guys, as well as Peter Pappas, who was, who was coming from Lincoln Harris or Johnny Harris at the time, you know, sitting in that room with those people all trying to come up with a way to develop a mixed use village was just fascinating. And then to be able to walk through it and see the success in real time when it was finished and see how people were living and working and shopping and how we had envisioned it happening and see that actually play out. I just don't think there's anything better to be doing than to see a idea come to fruition and be used the way you envisioned it years before. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, when you talk about mixed use, it's sort of every project is mixed use, right? It's not usually has retail on the first floor and apartment building, maybe an office component. But back in the 1990s, it was kind of a new idea a little bit. I mean, it, a new idea that was sort of getting back to the old idea of the way you develop cities, right? Very much so. And you know, Peter Pappas had just come off of working on Phillips Place. So he began to see the seeds of what could be done and then rejoined in from the Carlson side. And so everyone was bringing their expertise to the table. This is how retail works and needs, this is what they need to have. And this is how people live and this is what they need to have. And so all these ideas were always being vetted every week on what the best way was to pull it all together and make it successful. And we, it was pioneering and it was recognized nationally many, many times for being a successful mixed-use project that really pulled what everyone was talking about into reality. And then to your point, it, it has been mimicked in many different fashions since then. It's really interesting to see, I mean, getting off on a little bit tangent here on Burkdale, but you know, it's under new ownership now and they're sort of working to revitalize it and take, to, take it to its next place and turn that next chapter of, of Burkdale Village. You know, it's a little depressing because I view myself as still the young guy coming into the world of development. But that project and several others I've seen marketed as opportunities to renovate and bring back, modernize these projects, become outdated. And I think, unfortunately, looked in the mirror and said, 
Oh, well, okay. <laughs> no, no reflected on you personally getting old and outdated, right? <laughs> it looked, felt really good at the time. Felt like it was yesterday, but the more that I see my projects marketed as a really good redevelopment opportunity, I begin to realize that perhaps some years have taken place. <laughs> but I mean, that that's natural in real estate, right? That you give something a refresh or you sort of or modernize it. Even something like Burkdale that was you know, one of Mecklenburg County's first few mixed use projects, right? Certainly. But, you know, those things tend to take place 10, 20, 30 years <laughs> over that amount of time. And I guess I realized that that is the time frame that it's been since we did a project like Brookdale Village. But, okay. So to get back on the timeline a little bit. So you were at Crosland. Crosland in 2011 sold off a bunch of its divisions, but you were over the residential portion, I think you said, right? I was. And then you, you linked up uh, ultimately with Northwood investors. I mean, you started your own practice, then linked up with Northwood and then that became Northwood Raven. Is that the origin story? That's correct. So during the recession back in 2010, 2011, Crosland decided to divest of its operating divisions and gave the opportunity to each of the division presidents to buy out their division from the, the Crosland umbrella. And so several of us did that. Crosland Southeast, my company, Laurel Street, the several examples of, of people spinning out with the uh, success that, that had started at Crosland and, and going about executing it on their own. And, and I spun out and then several months later did form Northwood Raven with essentially the same business plan, which was to focus on acquisitions and development and, you know, predominantly be in the multifamily space. So what's it been like building your company? What was the thesis? What was the strategy of the company? Very similar to Crosland, it's always been to develop a project that you want to own long-term. I think John Crosland was very focused on not being a merchant builder, wanting to develop and own something that you were proud of and wanted to own long-term. So you became very dialed in on a specific opportunity that you believed could weather the ups and downs of that particular submarket or economy, as opposed to merchant building, which is, Hey, I just need it to be successful within the shorter time frame. building things with a long-term vision and building it and owning it, building it, managing it has always been in my DNA since the Crosland days. And I think we have built a culture around that. And so it's a very different approach. It's always a long-term approach of getting every detail right, because, you know, the idea is that you may live with this project for a long time. Now, obviously the markets move and opportunities present themselves. You, you can always sell it, but you design, develop, construct it for the long term, such that if you need to hold it for a long time, you're happy with it. So what are the factors that you look at when deciding whether to develop a certain project and, and how, how does that change over time? We're always looking for an opportunity that we believe doesn't already exist within any particular submarket. So you won't see us develop the fifth deck wrap building in South End. We will try to find an opportunity where we can develop something different. 
that we believe will offer the future residents something different down the road and, and can't be easily duplicated. So we look at opportunities through that lens of, is, is there a story here? Is the story going to hold true for the long period of time? If we develop this particular project, this particular way, do we feel like it will continue to stand by itself within that submarket? In which case, you know, it'll always be competitive. And if we can't convince ourselves that it's, it's going to be a special project and might be more of a commodity project, then we would pass on it. Yeah, I think there's a belief among some people when they look at real estate development in Charlotte and in the Southeast, you know, which are growing markets, right? That it's pretty easy to be a real estate developer that look, land prices are going up. These are growing areas. They're increasing in population. And, you know, I mean, some people I think think, well, it's you're in real estate in a growing area. It's not really that hard. What, what would you say to somebody who said, who would say something like that? You know, I actually talk to people about that more often than you think. It's an interesting, going back to how I got into development, it's an interesting field because it doesn't require you necessarily to get a license or a professional certification to be a developer. You can, you can become a developer through many different avenues. I, I chose to come at it the way I did, but to your point, someone could buy a couple lots and decide to develop something on it and then they're um, developers. But it, it is a, what Judd Little used to say is, easy to be successful when the tide is rising. You know, it's hard to make a bad decision when the market is at your back. But like I've always pointed out to anyone that wants to get into it and you can go back as far as you want to, real estate moves in cycles. And we've seen that time and time again. I've lived through many of them. It's not always on an upward trajectory. There are times when the wind is in your face and it really challenges what assumptions you made. Did you over leverage? Did you pick the right site? Did you build the right product? Because when the market goes backwards, which obviously is starting to happen right now, it tests a lot of those. And then you start to realize not every project is successful. You start to see the distress within the marketplace. You start to see the folks that maybe made some questionable decisions and it all gets flushed out in times like this. And th this is usually when we go into a slower time or recession that a lot of people get out of real estate, realizing that there are difficult times along with the good times. And so it's, it's part of the process. And we've learned a lot of lessons over the past few decades on, on how to not make the same mistakes twice, but everything is challenged at some point in time. And you have to then be very confident with the decisions you've made and make sure they are indeed standing the test of time. Now, what are you seeing in the marketplace right now? I know you, I mean, obviously interest rates are, are going up. That's really changing. I think the economics of a lot of the decisions, I think that you, you and other companies are making at the same time, you know, in Charlotte and a lot of these markets, the, the demand still seems to be pretty strong for the for the sector that you're in, which is, you know, residential, what, what sort of signals are you getting from the market at the moment? Well, we talk about it all the time. It's an interesting point. We are in the cycle because if you look at sales data, no matter for what, whether it's single family homes or commercial buildings or what have you, those, those prices have stopped the record breaking uh, trajectory they were on. 
you know, pricing has come down. Pricing has dropped depending on the asset class. And quite honestly, it, it moved to that so quickly from the start of the year that a lot of the velocity of trades, both single family homes all the way up to large office buildings has, has really slowed to a trickle. So that we're, we're certainly seeing a lot less sales because people don't know where the bottom is and they don't want to buy or like everyone says, catch a falling knife. They really want to know where pricing is going to remain consistently. Are, are you so, talking, are you talking about the residential, like single family home real estate market? Or are you talking about properties that, you know, that you would develop, you know, apartment complexes, that sort of thing? Both, both, both are really, I mean, you, you know, it's, it, it's, it's being magnified in all asset classes as it relates to real estate, because, you know, folks are not sure where the pricing is. So, you know, certainly you're seeing trades in all these assets, but nowhere close to the number of trades that we've seen in the past few years. So it, it's really slowed, as I said, to a much slower velocity as people are certainly dealing with higher interest rates, don't know where the true pricing should be. They don't know how their financial situation is going to look going forward. The, there's just a lot of trepidation and uncertainty in the marketplace. And that will always lead to a slowdown of transactions when people don't know what the future holds. So are you still moving forward with the projects that you have announced? The ones that we have under construction, we're still executing. We are probably like everybody else, slowing down on the number of new ones that we are putting into our pipeline, being a lot more cautious in terms of what we think we will be doing next. We want to continue to watch what the market does. Is this going to be a quick rebound? Is this going to be a slow drag out rebound? Is it going to be worse than we think, better than we think? So we're, we're being cautious like everyone else. And the interesting thing that's happening at the same time transactions are slowing is that construction pricing hasn't caught up with that yet. So construction pricing, unfortunately, is still going up in a lot of places. So you have rising construction costs still. You have rising interest rates and your sales prices are moderating, if not falling. So that's a recipe for not starting things. That would be a time to take a pause. Right. And I know you don't have a crystal ball and nobody does, but if you did have a crystal ball, what would it say? What do you see as the future? How does this all play out? Well, great, great question. I mean, my, my personal opinion and it. It continues to evolve every day as I watch what different factors are taking place is that I think through raising interest rates, I think through some of the macroeconomics that are happening around the country that we are going to go into a recession. Some people would say we're already in it, but I think we will be going into one. The question that I have will be how fast do we come out of it? What I've been a little bit skeptical on is the Fed has been raising interest rates and then looking at the data, you know, over the past previous month or two and saying, okay, we don't really see an impact from this way. Well, we're going to raise it again. We're going to raise it again. And my belief is that it just takes time for those kind of shifts of raising interest rates or slowing lending or whatever breaks they're trying to put on to work its way through the market. And so the data that we're looking at to continue to slow everything down, just, it just hasn't shown 
what we've already put into place. So I'm fearful that by the time it does work through the system, it's going to be worse than, than we hope. And so there will be an attempt to rapidly reignite the economy to get it going the other way, but it'll take time. I mean, you just can't turn on the spigots and have everything cranking in 24 hours. It just takes time for these things to ramp up and ramp down. And so unfortunately, I think it's going to be a little bit more of a bumpy landing than everyone is hoping. And I'm also keeping my fingers crossed that we can start to pull it back up faster than, than maybe we have historically. Yeah. I was going to say that's about all the questions I have, but it seems like sort of a downer of a note to end on. Do you have any notes of optimism that you might be able to strike? <laughs> well, I, you know, the, the thing that I do mention to everyone is Charlotte is in one of those those high growth markets that, you know, despite all these headwinds in the economy, we operate as a company in the Southeast. That has been an area that a lot of the country continues to migrate to as the cost of living and the weather and the availability of uh, land. Everything sort of is perfectly aligned. And that's why I think you're seeing so much migration into Charlotte in the Southeast in general. And so that is always something I take comfort in that we're in a market that will continue to show growth. There are cities throughout the U.S. that show negative growth, that show more people leaving than coming. The cities are getting smaller every year and we don't have that problem despite the fact people get annoyed with traffic and, and everything that comes along with growth. Growth at the end of the day is a good thing. It keeps everyone profitable. It, your house isn't going to go into a long-term free fall. So, you know, despite the fact that there are headaches, being in a market that's growing is terrific. And there's many cities across the U.S. that are very envious of cities like Charlotte and what they have. So I, despite all the headwinds, I don't think there's a better place to be than, than in Charlotte in the Southeast. Well, great. Well, David, thanks for joining us. Sure thing. Thank you. Okay, that's a wrap. To our listeners, thank you for listening. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com.